Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Media Mavens Podcast. We're here with our guest, Mick Mulroy, National Security Analyst with ABC News and Security and Defense. What's going on, Mick? So today we had a big hearing in the Senate, the Senate Armed Services Committee, where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, the CENTCOM commander, General Frank McKenzie, and the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Lloyd Austin, testified about the Afghanistan evacuation and the start of the inquiry into the last 20 years of now you're you're with Abe. I know you are a correspondent with ABC Security and Defense. I know you did a big call on this, and all the news is saying. I mean, it, it was a strategic failure. Was most of this congressional hearing and these meetings based on kind of a post what we did wrong, or did anything come out of any of this that says, okay, here's what we're going to do moving forward? Because I know the big goal right now is to still get people out of Afghanistan. So most of it did focus on what, what happened in the last, not really what happened in the last 20 years, but you know why was the decision made to withdraw all forces and not leave a residual presence, which would have preserved you know everything we fought for for 20 years. And on that note, I think it was substantial that both generals, uh, Millie and McKenzie, testified that they had recommended leaving a residual force there. And the secretary essentially didn't answer the question because he doesn't comment on what he what he told the president. So, which I, I think is an indication, at least, that he was in agreement with his chairman and his CENTCOM commander. So that would indicate that the president made the decision over the advice of, you know, his most senior military advisors, both uniform and and civilian to leave a residual force. He chose not to use a president, so of course he has that full authority, but he also owns the consequences. And I think that is, and that is what people are talking about going forward. And they also talk about the actual evacuation itself. And I think, I think that is one of the parts that was the most difficult for them to defend because of the, because it was obvious you know, we lost 13 servicemen and women, uh, hundreds of innocent Afghans died and, and we left Americans behind. So that was, that was also part of the testimony. And then they did talk a bit about the over-the-horizon counterterrorism effort going forward. One of the interesting statements that came out was the White House press secretary said that the military advisors were split. But it seemed pretty straightforward from the testimony that they were, you know, saying that this was a strategic failure, we should have left residuals, et cetera. From the testimony you covered, do you feel like there was any indication that there was kind of a split decision? Uh, no, I, I mean, it seemed pretty clear that the, there wasn't a split and they didn't. Nobody said that they disagreed with the idea of leaving residual force. So, again, the secretary and I understand, I mean, he he is the secretary of defense and his advice to the president. If he didn't keep it quiet, it would put him at odds with the president near constantly. I think one of the things that was surprising to a lot of, and I'm not a correspondent, I'm an analyst, but both, mostly the correspondents were just how upfront that the generals were saying, no, we, we thought we should leave the residual force. They usually try to do the same thing and say, well, my, my comments to the president are between me and the president. They did say that sort of, but then they went back to saying, 
But in my opinion, we should have left a residual force. And they said between 2,500 and 4,500, I think, was uh, maybe 3,500, would have helped maintain what we had for the last uh, 20 years. Plus, and everybody for, seems to forget this, there's 8,000 NATO forces that were there with us. So, and then it was predominantly to, to support our Afghan partners. So we would not have been the primary fighting force. We were in the supporting element, which is why so many of the analysts, myself and most that I have seen, were for keeping a residual force there. Well, there's a lot of news out there that a lot of these top generals are now saying, you know, it's been contradicting Biden, saying they recommended for a long time that a small force stays over there right now. And and it's a point to where Millie's now saying if he retires, it's a political retire on that level because of what happened. So it kind of feels like everybody's trying to place blame. Is there any like I know we talked about White House truth and ground truth. And we get the politics, so keeping the politics out of this. Is there any ground truth to this uh, that there is a huge conflict that most of our top generals advise to keep somebody there? Because I think that's where we're kind of split on all of these news releases and what we're hearing. Nobody knows the difference between White House and ground truth. So as an analyst of security and defense, how close are we to how stacked is it against Biden that they're now changing their story now that it's public, or were they all really against his initiatives to move everybody out? I could think it was clear that they had an opposite opinion. And the comment you talked about, like he should retire, that was asked to him by one of the senators. We said, okay, so you believe that we should have left a certain amount of troops there as a residual force, correct? And then why, And then his second follow-up question was, why didn't you resign if you disagreed? And I have to agree with the general on that. A general officer or any officer in the military, our job is to provide the best opinion that we have. And then it's the civilians under our system that make the decision. And unless it's an amoral decision that goes against the Constitution, then you don't resign. So I don't see why we'd be asking Chairman Milley why you didn't resign. He had a different opinion, and that's just part of being in the military and having a commander, in in his case, the commander-in-chief. And the commander in chief made the decision. And that is the system. And he's the highest elected official in the country. So, again, I mean, obviously, I agree with General Milley and General Miller, who was also the commander on the ground in Afghanistan before we elected to withdraw, that we should have left a residual force. I think the, the big problem is that the president did indicate that he did not receive the recommendation that we leave a residual force. And today made it very clear. A lot of the moving parts in this was one of the things that they did was, I know within 48 hours, and you were a part of it, that they moved over 124,000 Americans and Afghans. And had we left the troops, that probably would not have had to lead to this mass evacuation. What are your thoughts on that with your military background? Yeah, so if we would have left the residual force, it would have kept, I think, as it had for 20 years the Afghan National Army intact, and we would have continued to fight against the Taliban. And the Taliban is the ones that we've been fighting for 20 years. They were taking, they being the Afghan National Army, were taking a majority, a vast majority of the casualties. It was like 90, they were doing 99% of the fighting by the time we decided to withdraw. So we hadn't lost an individual in over a year and a half until we lost 13 individual heroes during the, the actual evacuation. So the Taliban would not have been able to take critical cities if the United States remained there. They certainly wouldn't have been able to take Kabul. 
probably could have easily defended that with all the assets that we had. And again, it wasn't, wasn't going to be easy. There's no easy answers in Afghanistan. But the way, and you mentioned, Sarah, about the strategic failure, our strategic objective in Afghanistan was to remove the Taliban so that they didn't provide a safe haven for terrorists who would then turn around and try to attack us. Now we have, it's a strategic failure in the sense that the Taliban is now in charge. There are terrorist groups actively in Afghanistan. They, you know, they attack us already. And we know from the testimony, the public testimony of the CIA leadership, that they are actively reconstituting. Al-Qaeda is actively reconstituting in Afghanistan. And they'll be fully capable of attacking the West within a year so or a year plus. So it's, it's, that's why it's a strategic failure. Because our objectives are now, we're not meeting any of our objectives. So, and there were some other things that went with that and benefit, like human rights, female rights in Afghanistan that happened over the last 20 years. They're all gone now. I mean, you can look at the news and see women have already been told they'll not go into school anymore. They're not going to work. They're not going out of their house unless they have a male relative with them. And they're obviously not going out of the house unless they're completely covered. So we've gone, whether it's the Taliban out of power. They're now in power. Terrorist groups operating freely in Afghanistan, they are now. And all the human rights that I think came with the the Western effort in Afghanistan over 20 years, all eradicated. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that it was a while ago when this happened. It was, if I have this right, all the jihads, they were actually around the world told, come home, safe haven, you're safe here. So they're all heading back in. And I want to touch base on this with you and Marjorie in a second as we pivot to the domestic terrorism, how it affects us. But I just want to make sure that, I mean, make, correct me if I'm not mistaken, but this was one of the largest airlifts conducted in U.S. history to get out within mm-hmm. 17 days. And we all know it wasn't perfect. It was messy, unfortunately. But because they're moving so many people quickly out of Kabul, that the capacity and the screening problems and intermittent staging bases outside of Afghanistan were the reasons why it became so difficult and it was such a failure. Can you comment if those or just kind of a cluster of all these things that created that, or if these are just one part of how this whole thing was handled. Yeah. So I think what should have happened is the U.S. should have maintained Bagram Air Base so that we could keep the Taliban out of Kabul until all of the diplomatic presence was removed and all of the American citizens in the special immigrant visa holders were out of there. So we didn't have to try to do this at a time when we were surrounded in one airport by the Taliban and ISIS-K, right? So it was a Herculean effort. It was a very impressive effort that our military and our State Department and our intelligence professionals were able to get 124,000 people out. I don't think that should be overlooked. It's incredible. But they did so in very difficult circumstances, and that didn't have to be the case. So if we would have had Bagram open and HKIA, we could have evacuated a lot more people under secure conditions, and we wouldn't have had to have all these volunteer groups trying to sneak people past Taliban checkpoints to get onto the airfield by any means necessary. If we would have had control of the Kabul region, which included the Kabul region would include Bagram, which is about 45 minutes outside of Kabul, we could have done this in a much more secure manner, and we wouldn't have had to do, you know, the level of effort that the servicemen and women and, and our other government agencies had to do. So I would totally agree. It was incredibly uh, impressive and incredible, but it was the circumstances surrounding it, I think, were important. 
So what this opens up is there's like two types of terrorists that come into the U.S. And, you know, obviously the foreign terrorists coming into the U.S. And I know the FBI thwarts and the CIA thwarts thousands of potential attacks. But then we also have been in Congress about the January 6th insurrection. And really what was so interesting about that is that was a lot of domestic, domestic terrorist groups that kind of came out of the woodwork. They use social media, they use a lot of these texting groups, etc., like communications. And now they're really looking into how they communicated. How do you feel like this international, just almost like it was so quick to, for this domestic group, if you think of the Taliban as a domestic group, they quickly took power. So then when you kind of parallel it to these domestic groups that are then doing, I mean, they got into the Capitol building, they're seeking a power and there's this great divide in the U.S. What kind of parallel things do you see between this international sector and the domestic sector? So that's an interesting question, Marjorie, because like in October, ABC News asked me to do like a deep dive into domestic terrorism. And whether there would be an insurrection was our exact question. And, And of course, I came back and said, well... I've never really, I haven't even lived in the United States in the last, you know, much in the last 20 years. So, I mean, I don't really do domestic terrorism. They all like, well, just view it as, as you would a international, you know, an insurgency in another country or a, a terrorist group like you would. And I, I was like, okay. So I did review the extremist groups in the United States and they are on both sides of the aisle. I mean, it's, it's almost bad to say aisle in the sense that they are still inside they're not inside the norm of the political they're on both extremes and i think they're both equally concerning so i did the paper and then three months later we saw the the assault on the capitol so people were sending me the paper back with a question mark removed on the uh will there be an american insurgency so it is it, and that's you're right you're exactly right there was there is an investigation going on right now in congress about the january 6th so it's it's more toward that event so it does focus on, on the groups that were involved in that event, like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters. And I think that's important to review uh, because it, it was, uh, it was uh, I think, a terrible thing that happened that day with an attempt to overturn the election. But broadly speaking, it's, it is an issue that involves far left and far right groups. And both sides are getting extraordinarily harmed. And in my opinion, they seem to want to create the actual thing that they claim to be concerned about, which is an internal civil war might be too big of a statement, but the the internal strike where there is a confrontation with the government and with the other extremist side. And I, you know, I don't think there's any, anything close to a chance that these groups would take over any state, let alone the country, but they could cause a lot of damage and they could, they could kill people in the process. And it's it's just dividing the nation. And I think it's something that has to be addressed in totality, you know, like both sides. It doesn't, I think, do any good if a person is on one side of the political spectrum and solely criticizes the extremist groups on the other side of the political spectrum. We need to have people criticizing the extremist groups on their own side of the if they want to have any any credibility or impact, that's where it needs to be. And I think that's something that, you know, the FBI and I was just talking to some an FBI agent today. They take very seriously and they are and they are putting a lot of effort behind ensuring that there isn't another event like January sixth or or, you know, the events like that happened in Portland with the attack in the police station. That would be a, a left side extremist 
group. Both are very concerning to the FBI, and they should be, and they should be concerning to us. So they're saying, because when we've done the research, both far left and far right attacks hit groundbreaking highs. I mean, the levels in 2020 were the highest, and they've been showing that the far right is, is a much larger group. I know there is a huge political supporter in Portland of Donald Trump who was shot. I'm not sure if he, or he was killed, but Antifa has taken a lot of the, in their minds, I think they feel the credit for this mass destruction of lives here. Do you think, I mean, and there's a database called CSIS. Have you heard of them? I mean, is that a reputable place? Because they're trying to figure out there's like over, I think, 75 domestic extremist groups in the United States. And some of the top ones are the Antifa, the Good Old, the Proud Boys and all of those. But is this CSIS kind of the go-to of where you're leaning to? I mean, I know you're not having domestic, but I feel like to Marjorie's point, Mick, this all this stuff, the Taliban, even that's over there. And to your point of it's going to eventually fall over here. Do you think a lot of these terrorist groups here domestically are going to start building because of what's going on over there? And do you think there's going to be linkage between both of them? Because it's showing that because we peaked in domestic terrorist attacks here domestically in 2020, I mean, we're almost at the end of 2021, but given the light of Afghanistan, I just feel like there's a lot more untold or uneasiness that we're not quite sure of. And I don't feel like we're quite as safe as people want to think we are here in the U.S. CSIS I am familiar with. I can't recommend it one way or the other because I'm just not not familiar enough with it. I don't mean to say anything negative because I just, but I want to, I don't want to recommend something I, I can't. I don't actually, I mean, I have read their statistics. I tend to get most of my domestic stuff from the FBI. They do a really good job, but maybe CSAS is, is also, you know, spot on. Yeah. Again, I'm not, I don't do a lot of domestic terrorism until recently. So on your point, there's no connection that I know of between foreign, like jihadist terrorist groups and the domestic ones that we've been talking about, left and right. There is, of course, a big concern that they would generate a jihadist terrorist type element in the United States that conduct attacks. Uh, ISIS differs from Al-Qaeda in that Al-Qaeda likes to plan, you know, huge attacks where they have a cell, they insert them in the United States, and then they conduct an attack, like, like September 11, 2001. ISIS is more content with reaching out to somebody who's already in the United States you know, radicalizing them is the term they use uh, online, uh, talking in encrypted apps. And then they could just go get their car and then drive, you know, for example, onto a festival full of people in, a, in some small town in the United States and kill uh, 25 people, right? And it, it requires almost no planning, no expense, it, you know. It's not, you know, September 11th with buildings falling down. But that's the way ISIS had, or they send in just gunmen, and the gunmen run to a mall and shoot people. So it's, and that would that would terrorize the United States, and then we would, you know, have to respond. And okay, majority, that came from Afghanistan. But they're saying majority different. of some of these domestic experiments and terrorist groups is all white supremacy. And the problem is social media has become the propellant for a lot of this because you guys, we don't have anybody on the ground anymore in Afghanistan. The Taliban. Is social media kind of the gateway for them? Because there's no way to monitor that anymore. Or is that just, is that something that is a bigger propellant to connect all this? Or do you think that's going to be less of one right now, given we don't have anybody on the ground 
to monitor. Because it's like, you can't monitor everybody, their right to privacy, but then social media is one of the biggest ways people are using to communicate. Yeah, so not having people on the ground in Afghanistan is a huge problem because we had a, a substantial human intelligence network that allowed us to keep tabs of what people were doing. Now we don't. But the most extremist groups, whether they're domestic or foreign, have gotten much more savvy on their use of communication devices, whether it's social media or just encrypted apps. They know that we're looking, and most of them aren't stupid enough to say things that could lead to us taking action. In Afghanistan, we have the authority to take direct action, lethal action. Obviously, that's not the case in the United States. We have a constitution here, and that requires us to do a lot more even to arrest somebody because we have freedom of speech. And unless that gets to a point of advocating violence, it can be it can be totally obnoxious speech. Like you said, white supremacy, for example. But this is the United States. So people have a right to their obnoxious speech, at least my definition of obnoxious, right? But unless they advocate violence against somebody or overthrowing the government, you know, that's, that's the law. So it is, it is a different... It, you know, what the CIA does overseas and what the FBI does domestically is, is a different ballgame. They have a different set of rules and they have to abide by them. That's the way it should be because we're, we're all U.S. citizens and we all, we have a constitution and a bill of rights. So I strongly believe that, but it does make their job more difficult. And these, these domestic groups, terrorist groups, from both the right and the left, uh, and it's more than just Antifa on the left, by the way. There's the Redneck Revolt. There's the John Brown Gun Club. There's all these new, newer, groups on the far left that are arming themselves uh, to the teeth uh, because they think, well, I mean, if this is our opponents and they're armed to the teeth. But this is this is going to be a substantial issue because they're savvy enough not to say things like, I advocate the violent overthrow of the U.S. government because then they know they're already, they're toast. So they, they say things like, we are very concerned about the government violently taking away our guns or whatever. They're, or we're very concerned about the other side's extremist groups so they can say things as if they're not advocating for things like a civil war, but they're just preparing for one. And that's what I said earlier. I think almost like they're preparing for something they want to actually instigate both sides. And that would be that would be a horrible situation. It seems like in our digital world, a lot of this speech has come out because people feel that they can be very anonymous online. And then that makes it very hard to a, for law enforcement to find them, but it also makes it very easy to be controversial if you think, hey, I'm not going to lose my job or I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get socially ostracized, et cetera, for my opinion, because I'm anonymous. And now with these January 6th hearings, you've heard about people getting fired, people getting, you know, because they could actually see the people. They are actually using social media. They're actually turning social media on people and arresting them because they're like, okay, we can identify them, which kind of is an interesting balance between like people felt like they could be anonymous, they felt like they had privacy, and now it's all turned against them. How do you feel like law enforcement can best use social media or how are you using social media in the military to really track people in an effective way that you know also prevents privacy issues? Well, like, I mean, th- that's a good point, but I just want to add to it. So it makes it a bigger question for you. With military and with Law enforcement, as you just said, anybody can use social media, say what they want. But when it comes down to it, they can say, well, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. That's not what I meant. You took it the wrong way. And this is why, in general, social media sucks in general for a lot of controversy. 
So I think that's even harder than because it could be misconstrued. But I think on a defense, if you're in a defense attorney, well, that's not what they meant. That's not what they said. It's hearsay. How do you use the Marjorie's point then, Mick? How do you guys use this? Because you don't have people on the ground anymore. How do you know if it's actually accurate or not? And how are you guys going to try to thwart this? Because we don't know what who's behind social media. We don't know what they're saying, what their intentions are. So how liable is that? So like overseas, you know, again, the, the Constitution doesn't apply. So we can use social media to determine whatever the requirements are to take action as designated by the president. And they're pretty strict, but it's not anywhere near something like in the United States. In the United States, again, it's a totally different situation. People do get away with saying a lot on social media. You know, I saw, I'm sure people, other people seen it, but there's a posting of two dogs and there's a fence in between them. And they're like snarling at each other and growling and barking. And then it's an automatic fence and it opens. And then he stopped barking and they stopped growling until the fence shuts again. And then they start back up, right? So people are uh, way brave on social media. And then when it's actually face-to-face, not, not so much. So there is that aspect. People just, especially like you all said, and when you're anonymous, you feel like you can say whatever. So and that just makes it a real toxic environment. That's not national security. That's just social commentary. But to the point on 6th January, once a criminal act occurred, like breaking into the Capitol and damaging property and stealing stuff, then all of these things that would have been somewhat covered under the First Amendment free speech then could become part of potentially a conspiracy to commit a violent act. And so that's why they're utilized. That's why so many people have been arrested and, you know, posting themselves sitting in the chair of the speaker or what have you. Then it, that would never have been protected by free speech. But my point being is it can be instigator to start something like six January, but it can also be a way to collect all the people that did uh, illegal acts in prosecute. And but I think after this, you'll see an adjustment. Hopefully this never happens again. But if it is, I'm sure that the, the people who plan it and execute it will be more savvy on what they put on social media because they can see that it's going to be used against them. Before you wrap up here, Mick, I mean, through all these congressional meetings, I know you've been reporting a lot of this for ABC. Has there been any inkling coming out of this of here's a situation? Yes, it was bad. Strategic failure. But moving forward into the future, are there any plans or any steps that they're thinking of or talking about to protect our allied partners, the United States, everybody from terrorists now that we're completely pulled out of Afghanistan? Or is that just not, is that a next step they're not quite sure they want to talk about yet and how to handle? Well, so they're they're definitely talking about it. And that's, you're going to hear, and so are all your listeners, they haven't already, this over the horizon concept for counterterrorism in Afghanistan. General Milley said today that it is going to be incredibly difficult because although we have the most sophisticated aircraft in the world and we can get there, we don't have a lot of knowledge and intelligence on the ground, which allows us to, in the military term of it, find and fix the threat. In other words, find the people that are planning the threat and then bringing in some kind of kinetic action against lethal action. So, uh, they are thinking about it, and if any military can do it, it's ours. But it's going to be more difficult, and we're going. We are taking much more risk by withdrawing. On the partners that you referenced, we still have we still have American citizens there. So I was talking today with groups, voluntary groups that are trying to get people out. There's still American citizens on the ground, which.
which is an absolute requirement for us to, to pull out, but also the special immigrant visa, the people who fought alongside the American forces there and were promised the ability to come to the United States. So, and that, that is going on. It is a public-private partnership. So the State Department, the Department of Defense, is working with private volunteer groups uh, to get people out. And I think that's going to be going on for years, as well as the resettlement here in the United States of these, these folks as they get here. I was just going to ask you, actually, where are we in percentage of how many are left? And I was going to ask you, which I think you just answered, how long did you think it will take to get the rest of them out, at least the ones that want to get out? And I know you said it would be a few years, but is there a lot of people on a percentage that how many of you guys have gone out and how many are still left? So it varies and it's difficult to determine how many American citizens, how many SIVs. I would say we're a couple, maybe less than a couple hundred American citizens. You had green hard colors in there. And then you have thousands of SIV people. And when I say years, I don't necessarily mean years to get them out, but you also, then they go to like Doha and Germany and all these other places where they have to go through the screening process. And it's pretty extensive. I know people are concerned. No, are we going to let potentially bad people in? In my opinion, no. They get screened much more than people coming in other ways to the United States, right? They're pretty heavily scrutinized. Uh, and then they come over together. Uh, and then hopefully they will be allowed to be all over the country. So, and, and I think they're going to be exactly the kind of citizens we want. They are people who have fought against a totalitarian regime for freedom. And unfortunately, that war is lost. But they did prove their loyalty to the United States in ways that not many people do. And they are generally very good people who are going to make really good American citizens. I think we should be proud of the fact that they are and embrace them when they come over. And I know some people already politically are making, I think, incorrect statements on this. But I think we should we should really embrace them and try to do everything we can to make them assimilated into American culture. Yeah. I know there's a few Americans over there who don't want to leave or they're Afghanistan Americans, their families there, or they don't feel like, hey, this doesn't affect us. The Taliban is not going to hurt us. I mean, they don't want to leave. They've chosen to stay there. Is there a large number of people that you guys feel, hey, you're, you know, they need to get out military relations and stuff or are you just going to leave them all? The ones that want to stay, they're not the ones you're going to focus your time on. You're just focused on the ones that desperately need to leave for the sake of their lives and their families, right? Right. And that's why I was hesitant because that's why the question of how many MSITs are there, because yeah. it really comes down to how many MSITs are there that want to leave. And that's sometimes in flux because they change their mind, right? That people have the ability to change their mind. And if they want to stay, I mean, the United States isn't going to force them out. So it's a risk. And I think you're right. A lot of them don't want to leave because their family's there. It's not that they want to stay there under Taliban's rule. They just, they can't get their mother and father and cousins or what have you out. So they've decided to stay there to be the protector, so to speak. And that's, that's, that's their choice. Certainly another one. But the ones who want to get out, we have an obligation, just like any American that would have been any, caught in any country that saw this kind of turmoil and takeover of a country by a terrorist organization. We need to get them out. And it's, you know, it's a daunting task. And like I said, I think that the the U.S. government working with these private groups is the way to go, not in parallel. And I think we're seeing that. I think that's, um, that's a positive. 
And when they get here, we're going to see a bunch of people who are going to be, I think, really productive and, and positive to our society. Is there really quickly, last question, I don't know if you could answer this, but I think we've talked about this briefly. Is, I mean, you guys, the CIA government, isn't there a list of all, like a census of all the Americans? I mean, you're there on passports, visas. Is there a list, a checklist of all the Americans over there that you guys could say, okay, these people, check them off. They're already out. They're safe. Here's the ones that are missing. Here's the ones that we can't locate. And there's no embassy there right now either. So how are you going to locate them if you know they want out, but you're not sure where they are because they're just being hidden for safety? This is another complicating factor and the reason why people have a hard time determining how many American citizens there. So there's no requirement to register with the embassy when you go to a country. They ask you to. And I think the State Department has a good point. Is if they can't require people to register, then they don't really know how many people are there. And so how we have become aware of who's there if they didn't register is they've reached out oftentimes to a volunteer organization that I'm an American citizen to help me out. And then we have provided, or they have, you know, part of some of those groups, provided that information to the State Department. So then they get the information there. The person never registered with the State Department. So it does complicate it. And it's just part of the system. You know, perhaps we can change the system so that if you're in a certain designated country, like an unstable country, if you're going to go there as an American, you have to register. I don't know the constitutionality of that, but it certainly would make it easier to keep track of Americans. But it's a balance. You know, do you want to require require that or not? And it does make the State Department's job really difficult. And that's where we're seeing right now. Okay. I want to pivot quickly. And I'm not sure this is a relevant question for you because so we could always strike it off the podcast, Mick, and let it go. But I know in Russia right now, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, it made it very clear all over the site government that they were, what, how do I say it, politely asking military and consul families that they're, you should pack up and go. You're allowed to leave. Basically, follow up with get the hell out. The um, Moscow embassy, the U.S. embassy in Moscow has been shut down. There's very no staff there. So they are trying to make it clear, Americans, it's not safe. Americans are being illegally contained. They are being harassed. They're being interrogated illegally. They are being attacked right and left. And so if you are an American going over to Russia, you can, there's no embassy support anymore. I mean, they are, and I think part of it, I can't say a lot of it's COVID related. A lot of it's politically charged since we pulled out of Afghanistan. And I know we haven't seen a lot about that in the news, but that's all over and level four tier alert that do not come here unless you absolutely have to for these reasons. Do you have any insight on that? Because I know we've been reporting all about the Middle East, but it's filling over into Russia now. And I'm not sure if that's anything you had any insight on or that you could share of what's going on over there right now. So, yes, I mean, Russia is by choice, I think. I mean, we put them as number two in our list of priorities and adversaries simply because China has more capacity. But when it comes to willingness to confront the United States, I think Russia would be number one. They essentially want to, wherever, whatever we want, they take the opposite opinion, in my opinion. They essentially want to be the opposite. You know, if we're the white hats, they want to be the black hats. So that's what they're doing now. And I don't think it's going to be getting any better anytime soon. One kind of bizarre addition to what you just said is this near constant attack of this, apparently this sonic weapon that they keep 
aiming at American diplomats, innocent, unarmed, obviously, people, and causing permanent brain damage, including to a friend of mine who was went to Moscow at the invitation of the Russians. I don't know how more slimy you could be than to invite somebody to a place and then surreptitiously harm them. And that's what exactly what they did. And he has traumatic brain damage as a result. And so many of the, now they're finding so many of the intelligence officers and diplomats are having the same thing. And apparently, and I have to say apparently, but I think it's actually acknowledged by the CIA, somebody who's on the director of the CIA staff that just got attacked by this, this weapon that I think most believe are the Russians. And they're not doing, just doing it in Russia. They're taking this contraption, I think, other places and, again, seriously harming diplomats. And, you know, something that the United States, I mean, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we'd never do that. It's just abominable and it's cowardly. I don't think they have a problem with that. There's a book out. I believe it was it your friend who wrote that book. I know you and I chatted about this a while ago, and I know I sent this to you. There was a book that came out on this subject. So the friend I'm referring to did write a book called Clarity in Crisis, Mark uh, Polymeropoulos. He's a good friend of mine and was a a fantastic CIA officer. That's him. It was all about strategy of how to get in and out of that situation, being a former CIA. That's supposed to be a phenomenal book. Uh, yes, it is. I have I have it right over there on the shelf. And Mark served in some of the most difficult places in the world, both from a CT perspective. We were both actually base chiefs at the same base. He served with me in Iraq. Like I said, he was the person that was attacked by the Russians in Moscow. So, yes, I would highly recommend that book to anybody on leadership. You don't have to be somebody who is you know, going into the CIA, for example, on leadership in general, how to how to react in a crisis situation, which could be you know, your base is under attack, or it could be the fact that your business is just failing for some other reason. And it is a crisis in your business world. So I would definitely recommend that book. He is He does a lot of talking on that issue as well. So you can certainly find if you, there can't be a lot of Mark Polymeropoulos's, probably is in, in Greece, but if you put Mark Polymeropoulos in CIA, you'll probably, you'll probably narrow it down pretty quick. Yeah, he'd be a good guest. I, you know, this is a whole, I think there's a whole new podcast for us for another day to talk about this because I know it's becoming a bigger subject in the news of what's going on in Russia. And I don't want to say this device, sonar, gun, whatever you call it, but I think that's another podcast for us, Mick. But I, I think it could be. Yeah, no, I loved having you on again. It's been a while. So thank you for being on the show again and updating us on what's going on over in the Middle East. I, we greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Great seeing you guys. Great yeah. discussion. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.